Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. What would it mean to you in your life to have free and ready access to a very capable and important person, someone of note, that actually cared about your needs and had the resources to help you if you found yourself in need. I suppose each of us would say that would be the turning point, that would be the determining factor between trouble and heartache and loneliness and abandonment and alienation and success and victory and peace and happiness if I had someone like that. Well, this morning I want to point you to a text in the fourth chapter of Hebrews, the 16th verse, as we speak on the theme approaching the throne in prayer. And this verse tells us we have such an important, notable helper. The apostle says, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Last week we looked at verses 14 to 16. We spent the bulk of our time in the 14th verse discussing the fact that we have a priest, seeing then that we have a great high priest. That's present possessive. We have a great high priest. We have a friend in Jesus. He's the sinner's friend. And he's passed into the heavens. You say, where is your priest? He's not in the pulpit. He's not at the altar. He is in the presence of God in heaven. He's passed into the heavens. That is, he's gone into the innermost sanctum, the holiest of all. And his offering has been accepted by God. And he's there now in the presence of God making intercession for us. Romans chapter 8 verse 34 says, Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Where's Jesus Christ today? He's not in a grave. He's at the right hand of God. He's passed into the heavens. His name is Jesus, the Son of God. That is our priest. And then he gives us two encouragements. Since we have such a priest... He says, let us hold fast our profession. That's number one. The second one is in our text. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Because we have such a priest, here is something we should do. We should be interested in perseverance. Let us hold fast our profession. That is, keep on keeping on. Never give up. Endure whatever the trials may be. Let us hold fast our profession. That's so important. We're living in a day in which people are quick to give up if something doesn't go their way. The least little trouble, they say, well, I think I'll take a different course. We see that in the homes of America. We see it in terms of contracts, business contracts. Someone says, well, I'm willing to risk the embarrassment and the legal ramifications of breaking the covenant, truce-breaking, rather than to endure the discomfort of the times. I've often thought if you picked up a hitchhiker, which I wouldn't recommend these days anymore, but if you picked up a hitchhiker 
who wanted a ride and you had transmission trouble a few miles after picking him up. Rare would be the hitchhiker who would say, well, I'm with you till the very end. I'll, I'll help you make sure that this vehicle gets fixed. You're not alone. I'm in it all the way. Rare would be the hitchhiker who would stay and help you. Most of them would be thumbing another ride, wouldn't they? And I dare say, my beloved, that many Christians today are quick to church hop, to say, well, if it doesn't work out here, I'll just stop going to church. He says, brethren, hold fast your profession. These Hebrews needed that message, for they were under persecution. The going was not easy. You know, that's a surprise to a lot of people. They, somebody says, I thought if I came to Christ in gospel profession that my, all of my problems would be over. Well, in one sense, your problems are just starting <laughs> when you take that first step because the devil will set you up as his target and do what he can to make a casualty of you on the battlefield of Christian living. Yes, there are even more troubles and problems to enter into the kingdom. He says we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. You say, then why would anybody ever follow Jesus in gospel discipleship? And the answer is because the blessings in following him far outweigh the troubles. The pleasures are greater than the pains. And because he's already done enough for us at the cross to earn and merit our obedience throughout the endless ages of eternity, my friends, he's already blessed me enough to deserve the sacrifice of my life on the altar of Christian service. Indeed, the burdens of discipleship are no match for the blessings. So the fact is we will have trouble in our lives. These Hebrews were being persecuted. They were suffering public isolation. They had lost their friends. Many of them had lost their jobs. Some had had their homes vandalized. Their goods spoiled, as chapter 10, verse 34 says, you took joyfully the spoiling of your goods. I can't imagine coming home and finding that someone has turned all of the cupboards over and broken all of the mirrors and just left the place in shambles, spoiled your food, and done everything that they can to frighten you, to terrorize you, because you abandoned the synagogue and joined the church. That's what some of these people were experiencing. And because of that, some of them were ready to let go. They were saying it's not worth it. And the apostle tells them several times in the Hebrew letter, hold fast your profession. You know, steadfastness is not a popular virtue. It's, not, it's a rare commodity anymore. But we can be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, regardless of what the world thinks about it, regardless of the cost of discipleship or the persecutions with which we may meet, because we have a living Savior. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the last verse in that chapter says, therefore, because Jesus is alive, therefore, he says, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So because we have a great high priest, let us hold fast. My beloved, I want to encourage you today to stick to it. Never leave the church. Never stop reading your Bible. Never stop praying. Regardless of the disappointments with which you meet, regardless of whether it's popular in the world or not, 
No matter what happens to you along the way, come what may, of joy or sorrow, be my portion, pain or rest, may we constantly focus on following Jesus Christ, serving Him, pleasing Him. Let us hold fast our profession. You made a confession of faith. Don't go back on your word. That's what he's saying. And then the second encouragement that he gives us because we have such a great high priest is in our text. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace. Not only perseverance, but prayer. Here is rich encouragement to approach the throne in prayer, to be people of prayer. Now, a prayerless Christian is an anomaly. It's a contradiction in terms. Prayer is as natural to a heaven-born soul as breathing is to the natural man. How long could you live without breathing? Well, we can't live any longer without prayer than we can without breathing. That's one reason the apostle said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, pray without ceasing. And I want to impress upon you today, dear friend, what a privilege it is to approach God in prayer. Have you ever considered the fact that the creator of the universe has given people like you and me free and ready access into his very throne room? Now, I can't get access to the mayor of my city. I probably could if I stayed at it. But it's not an easy task to break through the layers of protection that important people surround themselves with in order to talk to them. I sure can't gain access to the governor of the state. Some of you may be able to. I don't have that avenue of approach. I really, really doubt that I could just walk into the White House and go into the Oval Office and say, "Uh, Mr. President, uh, may I have just a moment of your time? The Secret Service would get to me long before then, hopefully. Well, my friends, may I say the fact is that the likes of you and me can come into the very presence of the king of the universe. Notice the text here speaks of a throne. Now later he's going to talk about having access into the holy of holies, into the religious sanctuary. But here he uses a more secular image, the throne. Let us come boldly to the throne. And it's a king who sits on a throne, right? Praise God we have access into the very presence of God for fellowship with him into the Holy of Holies like the high priest had in olden times. But we're talking now about coming to the throne. Let us come. And I would say today to you, dear friends, come into the throne of the king, the throne room of God. You say, Brother Goins, I don't have that kind of access. I'm just a common, ordinary person. There's not much about me that is reputable or notable. I'm sure not in the upper echelons of society. Well, you may know that the imagery here of oriental kingdoms was very common to the Jewish people. They were familiar with Persian kings, even Jewish kings, who were unapproachable, inaccessible to the ordinary man. The king would only be accessible maybe to just a very select few of his courtiers, or maybe a foreign dignitary or two here or there, but the average Joe could not come into the presence of the king. In fact, if he did, he risked death. We read a passage just a moment ago from the book of Esther, in which Esther said that I have not been summoned before the king for 30 days. Now, this king happened to be her husband. 
She was the queen to King Artaxerxes, or Ahasuerus, the king of Persia. But even she did not have ready access to come and go as she pleased. She could only appear in his presence, in that royal court, if he called for her. And when Mordecai says, you need to speak to the king on behalf of your Jewish people, she said, unless he calls for me, I can't go. He impresses upon her just how serious is the plight that the Jews face. For Haman has concocted this plot, this scheme to exterminate the Jews. You know, Hitler wasn't the first person to come up with the idea of genocide, Jewish genocide. Pharaoh wanted to slay all the Jews in his day because in Egypt they were becoming too populous. You remember? And he saw them as a potential threat to the kingdom of Egypt. And here Haman has concocted this plot to annihilate the Jewish people. And Mordecai says, Esther, you're the only person who is in a position to maybe do something about it. Who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a moment, for such a time as this. And my, what a pertinent question that is. Who knows whether you have come to the kingdom of God for such a day as we're living in today. I would ask you today, dear friends, is it easy to serve the Lord today? Absolutely not. Are there challenges? There are challenges aplenty. Dear friends, God has specially gifted you and he's taken care of you and he's spared your life to this very hour. And I would urge you today to consider the possibility that God has a work for you to do in his church and in his kingdom. And who knows whether you have come to the kingdom, whether God has brought you in his providence to this point and sustained your life thus far for such a day, for such a time as this. You say, Brother Mike, there's not a lot of interest out there. Well, then may you be the exception to that rule. May you be zealous in a world of apathy and complacency. Who knows whether you have come and whether I have come to the kingdom for such a day as this. You say, Brother Goins, I feel very weak. I feel exactly the same way. But I'm glad to tell you that His grace is sufficient. And the Holy Spirit has been promised to help us, to enable us and equip us to serve Jesus Christ and to be found faithful to Him. So Esther is coming before the king and Mordecai encourages her that if you don't go, then God is going to help His people, the Jews, from another place. But you have no guarantee that you will be spared or that I will be spared, and Esther comes to the conclusion then, I will go in before the king, and if I perish, I perish. I love that language of resolve. And the story goes on in chapter 5 that we read just a moment ago, when she does appear before him, and he looks up and notices that she's there, and it's the moment of tension in the story. He could have very well said, off with her head, for who is this insolent woman who dares to approach unbidden to the great king of Persia. He had that power and that authority. A throne can be a very intimidating sight. But instead, he held out the golden scepter of peace and pardon, which said to her symbolically, you may approach. Now, if that was the case with a Persian, earthly, oriental king, how could you or I... Mortals as we are, creatures of the dust, and sinful mortals at that, ever presume to approach to the king of the universe, could you just go in unbidden to the throne room 
of heaven and earth, it seems to be impossible. What rich encouragement there is in this verse. One of the things we've noticed as we've studied through Hebrews is the several warnings in this book. I've told you in previous messages that there are five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. You know, don't let the things that you've heard slip. That's a warning. You know, he tells us to beware lest you come short of entering into God's rest because of unbelief. That's a warning. We need to be warned from time to time. The preacher who won't warn God's people from time to time is an unfaithful watchman. You know, a watchman on the wall in ancient cities, his job was to warn the city. If he saw danger, he needed to sound the alarm. It wasn't enough for him to just simply say, "Uh, people, I know you're sleeping, but there's a fire in quadrant four. He had to ring the bell and blow the trumpet and sound the alarm, even if they were not happy with him, to be awakened in the middle of the night, yet he was not a faithful watchman unless he warned them. If he saw an enemy approaching, he needed to warn the people so that they could prepare to protect themselves and defend themselves in battle. The same, my friends, is true of the gospel minister. He needs to warn God's people. There's a place for preaching Christian responsibility and duty and telling God's people that the way of transgressors is hard. We need to be reminded of that. If you are bent on living a life of rebellion and disobedience against God, my friends, I'm here to warn you that you're in for a hard road to hoe. The way of transgressors is hard. Sometimes people allow their hearts to grow hardened and they say, God's not going to tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I please regardless of what his word says. Well, I warn you today, my friends, and I hope to be a faithful shepherd and watchman on the walls to do so, that there are consequences for disobedience in your life and mine. But you know, a faithful pastor will not only warn God's people, but he will encourage and comfort them. And what we have in the book of Hebrews is a Wonderful pastoral blend between warning and encouragement. And this is one of those encouraging passages. Let us, brethren, come before the throne. I would invite you today to take advantage of the high privilege of approaching the king. You say, well, Brother Mike, a throne, as you said, is not a place I feel comfortable. Would you feel comfortable if you... uh, stood before a bunch of dignitaries. Some of you may have had enough experience in life to where your mouth wouldn't get dry and your knees wouldn't knock together and you wouldn't be nervous. But most of us, I dare say, if I had to speak before a crowd of high-ranking, important officials, I dare say I would have to fight nervousness. I'd have to fight stage fright. It's enough just to preach before the sweet saints of God on Sunday mornings. You know, somebody says, do you ever get nervous before you preach? Well, you know, I've had a little experience and it's not as bad as it used to be, but I still sometimes get, uh, my hands get clammy and I still sometimes have difficulty collecting myself, especially if I'm preaching in front of a crowd that I'm unfamiliar with. Public speaking is not something most people enjoy. You know, Dale Carnegie some years ago said that uh, the number one fear, according to all the research that they had done, was not the fear of dying. It was the fear of public speaking. (laughs) What if I were to go through the congregation today and say, everybody wants to come up here and uh, just tell everybody what the Lord's done for you. How many of you would like to do that? You know, just get out in front of everybody. 
Now, some of you, it wouldn't be a challenge, but most of us, I suspect, it would not be an easy thing to do, right? That's why it takes courage to walk down the aisle and to unite with the church in baptism. You say, well, all these people are looking at me, but see, these are people that love you. These are people who know exactly what you're talking about. They, they share your experience. They've been there. You know, that's a point in which what the Lord's done for you far exceeds your fear of what other people might think of. You know, you say, I don't care what anybody will say or think of me. The Lord's been so good to me, I have to publicly state I love him and want to serve him. And that's a wonderful blessing, my beloved. But you see, if you were to come into the presence of a king, if you were to appear before a notable official, a national leader, wouldn't you feel a bit intimidated? A throne is a very foreboding kind of situation. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 3, we read about the one who sat on the throne was like a jasper and a sardine stone. They have ornamentation in a king's court that you don't probably have in your living room or your den at home. They have decorations there that are unfamiliar to most of us. I mean, the metals that are there are not, you know, gold-plated. They're pure gold. And the seats are cushioned, and the trumpets, the band is playing, and the ceilings are high, and the echo is great, and the, you know, the entire circumstance of a palace differs from our double wide or our home, right? It's different. It's just not a place you would feel comfortable, or I would feel comfortable, I dare say. And he says in verse 5 of Revelation 4, out of the throne proceeded thunders and lightnings and voices. That sounds frightening. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And he talks about a very ominous scene here. Lightnings, thunderings, voices. The throne is a place that speaks in its own right of no access. You don't want to get too close. But I want you to notice in this passage that there's also a rainbow round about the throne in sight likened to an emerald. And a rainbow in the Bible is the symbol of God's covenant of grace. Do you remember when Noah and his family were spared from the destruction of the flood on the ark? After the waters receded, God put a rainbow in the sky as a token of his covenant, his promise never to flood the earth again. God is a gracious God. And even though he's an awesome and an august and a holy and a sovereign God, I'm telling you, he's a God of grace. His grace is sovereign grace. It's a throne of grace. Let us come to the throne. But the point that I'm making is this is not a throne of judgment or of censure. Somebody says, if I'm going to appear before a very high-ranking official, if I have to go before the judge, or if I have to go before the chief of police, or if I have to go before the governor, what if he calls me on the carpet? What if he censures me? What if he critiques my life? What if he says that you've come to the court today in order to be tried for some indictment or charge made against you? You say, Brother Goins, that would be a very frightening experience to have. Well, I'm telling you, dear friends, you don't have to be afraid of this throne in prayer, you're coming before a God who sits on a throne, not of judgment, but of grace. Isn't that wonderful to know? It's a throne of, it's a welcoming place. This is not a repulsive throne that 
frightens little children away, but it is an inviting throne that opens its arms and says, welcome to the little sinful, weak child of grace. It says, come close to God. You can come close to God. I want you to think about that for just a moment, dear friend. Yes, you can draw nigh to the king. (laughs) You have access to the king of glory because he's already held out the golden scepter of peace and pardon to you by virtue of the blood of Jesus Christ because you have a priest, a great high priest. And because of his sovereign grace, because grace is on the throne, Aren't you glad to know that the gospel message is different from what we see around us? What we see around us is the message sin is winning. Sin is ruling. Sin is on the throne. Isn't that the message you see in the daily news or in the activities, the events of world affairs? We look around us and we say it looks like evil is winning. Wrong is prevalent. The bad guys seem to have the upper hand. The good guys are finishing last. And you say, Brother Goins, it appears that wrong is on the throne and truth and right is on the scaffold, teetering and tottering. I'm telling you, dear friends, grace is on the throne. Grace is sovereign. Romans chapter 5 says it like this, as sin hath reigned unto death. You know, this cemetery out here is evidence that sin has the upper hand, that sin has had its reign, its heyday. It has been dominant. It has ended in death. The wages of sin is what? Death. Physical death, spiritual death, death in relationships, death in our fellowship with God. In every respect, sin ends in death. And as sin hath reigned unto death, sin has had the upper hand. You say, it. I just can't beat it. It's taking a toll on my family. It's taking a toll on my body. It's taking a toll on our church. Sin is winning. As it appears that is true, I'm telling you, even so, grace reigns through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. And you say, Brother Mike, where's the evidence of that? In the gospel, in the good news that we hear preached and proclaimed. That's why we need to hear preaching on a weekly basis. We need to hear the gospel bell rung regularly, my beloved, because it tells us that the Lord has already conquered our sins. That he's already put down the enemies that separated his people from himself forever. Whether it's the devil or the grave or hell or the penalty of the law. Jesus Christ has already conquered our sins through his sacrifice on the cross. You see, our high priest has made a sacrifice for us. Priest had two roles, two functions. He makes sacrifice and he makes intercession. He slays an animal and sheds its blood and sprinkles the blood and goes through the ceremony sacrifice. But he also intercedes. He prays for the people to God. Well, Jesus Christ, our priest, has already made the sacrifice once and for all on the cross of Calvary. He has died in our room instead. And through his death and the shedding of his blood, the wrath of God has been satisfied And the law of God has been met and fulfilled. And the Lord Jesus Christ has sprinkled that cleansing blood upon all of his people. We're all justified in the sight of God. We've been declared free from guilt and blame by virtue of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
And therefore, the throne that we come to in prayer today is not a throne of judgment with its threatening clouds of fury, but it's a welcoming place. The king holds out the golden scepter again of peace and pardon to us so that we don't have to be afraid. And we don't have to be filled with trepidation and uncertainty. In fact, he says we can come boldly to the throne of grace. I'm glad it's a throne of grace, aren't you? Because it's a throne of grace, not a throne of judgment. The imperfections in your prayers and mine do not disqualify us from a blessing. You know, when I pray, I feel so often that I fall far short, don't you? My mind gets dull. I stumble over my words. I stammer my way through a prayer. Sometimes my mind wanders. And I think, what a poor excuse for a prayer that was to bring before the king. If you're going to bring a gift to the king, if you're going to make a petition, don't you think you would make sure that you said everything just right? Oh, indeed, my friends, we should put forth effort into our prayers. We should try to learn to pray better. Even the disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, they had the desire to pray, but they wanted to learn how to do it better. And I dare say every child of God who's been born again has the desire to pray. He has the impulse, the instinct. He wants to talk to God, but we want to do it better. We want to grow in our prayer life, right? I suspect if there's any area of our lives that we would all agree falls far short of what it should be, it's our prayer life. I feel my shortcomings in that area probably as much or more than anyone else. And I look at some of my prayers and I think they are filled with imperfections. Sometimes they're self-centered. Sometimes my mind wanders. Sometimes I fail to pray for the people that I need to pray for. Sometimes I fail to be thankful for the blessings I've already received. And it's like I brought a Christmas wish list to God saying, I want this on page 37 and I want this on page 75 of the catalog. And Lord, please give me, give me, give me. And there's no worship. Uh, there are imperfections in our prayers. We ought to try to do better. My beloved, may I say, as much as you grow, your prayers will still never equal an angel song as far as their perfection is concerned. Do you think the angels ever hit a sour note as they encircle the dazzling throne of God in glory and worship him in praise? No, my friends, I suspect that every note is just right, every rhythm is exact. I suspect that they do it better. But you know, an angel song could do no more than our prayers can do if they're sincere, if they come from your heart. And here's the most important lesson I would say to you this morning about praying acceptably to God. Make it real. Make it genuine. Make it from your heart. Pray, my friends, not just a repetition of a formula of words. You know, that's why we don't read our prayers. That's why we don't script our prayers. That's why we don't have a book of prayer. You know, say, okay, these are the only prayers that are appropriate. Now, we ought to try to do better. And uh, there's nothing wrong with reading a prayer somebody offered in the past that is a very fervent and effectual prayer. But I'm, I'm saying that when you pray to God, what the Lord is looking for is heart-to-heart -heart conversation. He's looking for something genuine. It's better for your prayers to be without words than for your words to be without heart. And when you go to God in prayer, my friends, put your heart in it. Tell him what's on your mind. You say, well, he's a king, and the very fact I'm in his presence scares me, and I don't think that I could come. Well, you're coming to a throne of grace, and therefore you can come boldly. 
That word boldly in our text means with confidence. Let us therefore, because we have a high priest, let us therefore come boldly with confidence. The actual Greek word here suggests the idea of freedom to speak, to speak your mind. Now he doesn't mean that you can be irreverent. You say, okay, I'm going to go give God a piece of my mind. No, no, my friends, perish the thought. He's a king, I tell you. He also happens to be your heavenly father. And the idea of speaking freely and confidently and openly without any fear of recrimination, with frankness and candor, that idea does not mean that we should be rash or that we should be presumptuous in the way we approach God in prayer. He's the king. But the thought is this, just as a family can speak freely in its own home, so you, little child of God, can speak freely through your elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, to your father in heaven, even though he's the king and he's sitting on a throne, it's a welcoming throne to which you and I can approach and not be ashamed or afraid to let our requests be made known unto God. Unburden your soul. If you're going through a difficult time in your life today, if your heart is heavy and your life seems to be tangled up like a backlashed fishing line, and you say, Brother Goins, I don't know which way's up anymore, and I'm just, it's just amazing that I've even got any inkling of sanity left, and I'm going through a hard time. May I say you need to go to God in prayer. You say, well, I don't know what to tell him. Tell him what's on your heart. If you need to weep and sob and pour your heart out in tears before God, do it. If you need to wrestle with him in prayer and say, oh God, please help me. Oh Lord, I know that you love me and I know you've already solved my biggest problem at the cross, the sin problem. And I know death is not the end, but Lord, my family's in a state of confusion and chaos. And oh God, I don't know where to turn. I need help. I'm here to tell you today, dear friends, that your father welcomes such a plea. The throne is a throne of grace. The arms are open. Your high priest has purchased this access for you. You can come through Jesus Christ to the Father. Notice that's why we can come boldly, because we have a priest. Therefore, let us come boldly with freedom. You can speak to him just like you would in a family conference. You know, families need to communicate. They need to be able to speak openly and transparently and freely. I think communication is so vital that it would do us all well to turn off the iPhones and the Android devices and the computers and the television and the video games for a little while from time to time and just sit around the supper table, the dinner table, to have a meal together and to converse, communicate. My, if we can just talk, share your feelings. What's been happening in your life? What happened at school? What happened at work? Well, I met the most interesting person. And it doesn't all have to be negative. In fact, try to avoid that. But be free about it. Be real. Be candid. My friends, may I say in your prayers to God, you don't have to just uh, say, okay, let's see, what am I supposed to say? And I'm just going to go down the list here. Uh, you know, it helps to have a format sometimes to follow when you're learning how to pray. You know, I want to make confession of my sins. I want to give thanks for blessings already received. I want to intercede for people who've asked for prayer, who need prayer, my own family, my relatives, my church family, my friends, 
I want to confess my sins and ask for forgiveness, and I want to be specific about it. It's helpful to to have an idea of what prayer is. My friends, in the final analysis, though your prayers are filled with imperfections, remember that he hears your heart more than he does your words. For the Holy Spirit makes intercession for you with groanings which cannot be uttered. Sometimes all I can do is moan and groan. How about you? Now, that's not enough if that's all you ever do, but I'm saying there are seasons in our lives when that's all we can do. Prayer should first be an act of worship. That's what I'm saying. When you come to God in prayer, my friends, don't forget to spend a little time worshiping. Start your prayers by reminding yourself of who your God is, what he's done. Oh God, thou art the God who created the universe. My Father made it all. He made the stars. He made the trees. He gives the rain. He takes care of the animals in the forest. And Lord, you've taken care of me. Oh, how thankful I am. And first of all, you've taken care of my biggest problem at the cross. And Lord, I can't ever thank you enough for what you've done for my soul. Tell him that. Say, thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ. And Christ, thank you for volunteering to take my place. I know I'm not worthy. And I know I deserve a devil's hell. But Lord, I'm so thankful for your love to me. So spend a little time in worship. Repeat a verse or two that you know from the Bible. Lord, you're a sovereign God. I'm thankful to know that thou art an omnipotent, all-powerful God. Thou art a God who never changes. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thank you, Lord, that you're a God of sovereign grace. A God whose grace has triumphed over all of my sins. Thank you for the precious cleansing blood of Jesus. Thank you that I can talk to such an important being, the only eternal being in time or eternity. Lord, thank you that the likes of Michael Goins has ready access. I don't have to wait for an appointment. You know, if you want to get in to see your doctor, you've got to wait at least a couple of months, especially if it's a specialist, a new, a new, you're a new patient. You say, I can't get in for three months. I usually tell them when they tell me that on the phone, well, I'll be dead by then. <laughs> you know, I'm, I may not survive three months. I need to see you yesterday. But uh, they don't care. They'll, I mean, they, they probably do, but I, I can't get seen to get in the front of the line for some reason. But I'm telling you, you can go right to him. There's never a closed for lunch sign hung on the door of heaven. Be back at three o'clock. Sorry, there are 16 people ahead of you online waiting for customer service. You'll never get that in heaven. Isn't that wonderful? You, little children, elderly widows, elderly widowers, young families, single people, married people, males, females, rich, poor, you can go talk to God in prayer. You can. Are you doing it? When you do it, you say, well, Brother Goins, I don't, I'm kind of scared. I'm kind of nervous. He's such a great God. I'm such a little person. Don't be nervous. You come with confidence because your great high priest stands there for you. The throne itself is a throne of grace. And his grace covers your imperfections. And though you may stammer and stagger, if your heart's right, God sees that. And he knows what you need and what I need more than we know what we need. Right? And he's promised to help us and to hear us. By him, let us come, as chapter 13, verse 15 of Hebrews says, and offer the sacrifice of praise.
to God continually by Him. The hymn writer John Newton put it like this in that wonderful old song, By Him, that is by Jesus Christ, my prayers, acceptance gain, although with sin defiled. Satan accuses me in vain, but I am owned a child. Ephesians 2.18 says, For through Him, both Jews and Gentiles have access through one Spirit unto the Father. Notice you've got the whole trinity in Ephesians 2.18. Through Jesus Christ, we all have access through the Spirit unto the Father. The Holy Spirit's helping you. Jesus is there as your intercessor. His blood has opened the way of access for you to come into the very throne room of God. You can talk to the King today freely without any fear of rejection. And when can you do this? The text says, in time of need. Let us come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help when? In time of need. Now there is a sense in which we could say every time is a time of need. That's for sure, right? Are you ever not needy? <laughs> I need strength. I need grace. I need forgiveness. I need help. I need guidance. I need the Lord 24-7, 365, don't you? So my friends, in a time of need, which is all the time, you can go to God. You can go to the throne, the throne of grace. But in the passage before us, I think this expression, in time of need, means more than just that every moment is a time of need. But he's talking about a special time of crisis. And every one of us will pass through times like that in our lives. I've had a few. You ever had a time of crisis in your life? It's what Ephesians 6 calls the evil day. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day. You say, well, every day is an evil day. I mean, sin is rampant. Yeah, but there is a moment when the battle is the hottest. There's a moment in every battle in which the outcome of that little window of skirmish will determine the final victors and the final losers in the battle itself. And there are moments in our lives when it seems that the devil steps up his pressure on you or me. When he marshals all of his resources and targets your life. I've walked through some very precarious experiences. Now praise God every day's not a day like that. The sun shines most of the time in my life. And it does in yours as well, whether you know it or not. I've had many more blessings than I've had burdens. And uh, life's been a lot easier than I deserve. He said, life's been so hard. It is hard, but it's been easier than we deserve. <laughs> Could have, should have been a lot harder. I mean, I deserve to have had a rough road the whole way. But God has been, he's given me so many smooth, you know, smooth seas. I've had some smooth seas. Now, I've had a few Eurocladons. The storms, the hurricanes, the typhoons. I've had a few storms. Somebody says, oh, this is a moment. Everybody, please pray. Please pray for so-and-so because this is a moment of great crisis. It's a time of need. That's a time of great need, a time of crisis. My friends, what should you do when the crisis hits your life? Walk into the doors and come to the throne. Throne of grace. You say, what if, what if God won't help me you can obtain mercy there because you're not worthy to be there. I'm not, so we need mercy. Do you ever face any situation in your life when you don't need mercy? I need it all the time. So you, if you need mercy, you can obtain mercy there. Compassion. That's what verse 
15 is talking about when he talks about our sympathetic high priest who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. God willing, we will take our cue from that and discuss that theme as we move into the fifth chapter soon. You can obtain mercy, compassion. Have you ever needed a friend, I asked you when we started in your life, that actually cared about you? You know, some people say, how are you doing? And if you try to tell them, they say, well, just, uh, just a second, maybe so-and-so can probably help you. You know, they're trying to be courteous, but they don't really care. I mean, deep down, let's just be honest about it. Do you have anybody who really cares about you today? Yes, you do. Your great high priest. You can obtain mercy, compassion. That's what, it, that's what mercy is. And find grace to help in your time of need. You say, I need somebody to not only care, I need somebody who has the resources to help. You see, he both cares about you, and he has grace to help you in a time of need. Now, grace is not a special magical potion. There is not a jar in heaven with a piece of masking tape on it where someone has written with a sharpie, G-R-A-C-E. Here's a special, here's a little grace. It's a special chemical, a special compound. It's not a magical potion. Grace in the Bible means undeserved favor. Any blessing, any resource that he has that you need. And you say, well, I don't deserve that. That's right. It's grace. But he can meet any need you have in your life, any need I have in my life, because he has the resources. His supplies, his shelves are stocked. That grace may come through a person to come to your side and be your friend and help you and encourage you and pray with you and maybe even help you solve your problem. It may come through a sermon at church where the preacher says something that he just sort of, sort of said in passing, but the Holy Spirit takes that one sentence and applies it to your case. And you say, oh, I found such great help today in the service. It may come through a hymn somebody selects. And the Holy Spirit uses that to encourage you. It may come through a note card you get in the mail where some friend that you haven't seen for years says, I just had you on my mind. I've been praying for you lately. It may come through peace that God gives you through your own prayers. Maybe you've wrestled with him and you finally walked away from the throne of grace with finally some resolve, some calmness. You've calmed down. It may come through somebody saying, hey, let's go out and have a bite to eat. Let's talk together. Just the meal and the fellowship makes you feel better. All, the whole world looks brighter. God has many ways of infusing his heavenly resources into your lives to help you in a time of need. And you ought to ask for that when you pray. One of those ways, too, is when you pray, he will answer those prayers and give you mercy, compassion, and grace to help you in a time of need. What would it mean in your life to have a friend, and you had free and ready access to this friend, it was a very important friend that really cared about you. And not only cared, but had the resources to help you. You've got one. That's why the hymn writer says, a throne of grace, then let us go. Come, brother, let's go together. Let's pray more and offer up our prayer. A gracious God will mercy show to all who worship there. A throne of grace, oh, at that throne our knees have often bent. You ever been there? You ever prayed at the throne of grace? And God has showered his blessings down as often as we went. A throne of grace, rejoice ye saints. That throne is open still. To God, unbosom your complaints and then inquire his will. 
a throne of grace we yet shall need, long as we draw our breath. That's true. A Savior, too, to intercede until we are changed by death. Then the throne of glory shall glow with beams from Jesus' face. You see, one day the throne of grace we need right now will be a throne of glory in heaven. You'll be in the very immediate presence of the King. And we no longer want nor know nor need a throne of grace. There's rich encouragement here, dear friends. I hope you found some today at the throne of grace. The throne of grace.